glad that you're here. Glad you guys are joining us uh, online. Hey, that uh, the e-bulletin that comes out on Wednesdays uh, may be especially important this coming Wednesday um, because we're starting to see that the county might make some changes in terms of the guidance and uh, allowances in terms, I know they're uh, rolling back um, uh, indoor dining, and so we're not quite sure how that's going to affect our indoor gatherings, whether or not we're going to be able to have church next week. So we're waiting, I think, Monday, Tuesday for some uh, potentially revised guidance from the county. So we'll put out whatever we learn on Wednesday, and uh, that'll if, if we're allowed to meet, we're going to meet, and if we're not allowed to meet, then we won't be meeting. But do check the e-bulletin that comes out on Wednesday, and it'll let you know what to do uh, on Sunday. So if you don't already get that, uh, like Susie said, you can just go to the church website at ccmv.org, and I think there's a sign-up link for the, we- uh, for the e-bulletin. And if not, you can just email info at ccmv.org, and we will throw you on the list. So uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be in Acts 23. We're going to look at the first uh, 11 verses of Acts 23. Great text. And uh, if you guys are anything like me, uh, then you would probably agree that sometimes people are just plain puzzling. And whether it's, uh, I think, people that we know personally, maybe people that we see participating uh, politically, maybe people who have very active voices socially. So again, whether we're talking about friends or coworkers or authors or politicians, we look sometimes, I think, at the things that they do and the things that they say and the decisions that they make, the actions that they take, and we wonder what in the world could have led them to think that that was the right thing to do. Or we wonder how they can possibly, you know, live with themselves. How is it that they can go to sleep at night, you know, in just what seems to be a bed of lies with a a warm blanket of hypocrisy pulled up tight over them to to keep the chill out. But I, I think that as puzzling as that can be, I really do think that we're going to get a little bit of insight kind of into that question uh, this morning, and we're going to get it from, I think we're going to really see it in uh, another one of these very brief little biographical snapshots that the Apostle Paul gives to us about his own life, and I think uh, really we're going to see his experience personally of the way that he has been uh, cleansed and the way that he's been encouraged uh, by the word of God. So let's pray and just jump in. Ask the Lord really to bless uh, his word to us today. So Father, we do thank you again just for the opportunity uh, to be united here together in your spirit. Lord, for the privilege that we have of studying your word uh, openly, Lord, publicly. And we thank you, uh, Lord, first and foremost, that you are our teacher. And so we pray, Lord, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today. Lord, we pray for open ears to hear what your spirit would say, Lord. And we ask it uh, collectively as a church, Lord, but most importantly, we ask it personally for each one of us uh, as individuals. And so we thank you, Lord. Pray that you'd bless this time. Lord, bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember when we last left off, there was a Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, 
who found himself with kind of a problem on his hands. And that problem, you remember, was the Apostle Paul. Remember the way that, uh, that Lysias had kind of rescued Paul from certain death at the hands of this angry Jewish mob as they were beating Paul senseless up there on the Temple Mount, not knowing exactly what they were mad at. They just knew that they were mad, and it had something to do with this man. We saw Lysias let Paul address the crowd, remember, at Paul's request, and I think he did it partially because he was hoping he would learn something about the reason for all of the upset. And yet we saw that Paul spoke to the Hebrew people. It said he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. He shared his very powerful testimony of the way that he had had this personal encounter, really this head-on collision with the resurrected living Jesus, and that it had been Jesus who had saved him and changed him and then had commissioned him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And at that moment, we saw that if the crowd didn't know why they were mad before, now they certainly knew why they were mad. And they were mad at Paul's suggestion that these hated Gentiles were actually as worthy in God's eyes of God's grace and his salvation, just the way that the beloved Jews were worthy. It was just too much for them to take, and we saw that once again, Claudius had to rescue Paul as the mob went mad. And then last week we looked at, once kind of safely inside of those army barracks, that Lysias ordered Paul to be scourged, right? He they was trying to draw out some information from him, trying to determine what it was that Paul had done, what he could possibly charge Paul with. But we saw the proceedings immediately halted as Paul very kind of casually mentioned that he just happened to be a citizen of the Roman Empire and all the, the rights and the privileges and the protections that came along with that. Not the least of which was to not be scourged before being found guilty by a court. And then in our very last verse last time, which is sort of our first verse this time, in verse 30 of Acts chapter 22, it said that the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So remember we said that kind of realizing that this wasn't a Roman issue, but rather it was a religious issue within the Jewish religion, that Claudius kind of convened this emergency meeting of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is that 70-member ruling religious body of the entire nation of Israel. Effectively, it's kind of like the Congress, if you will, of the Jewish nation. These would be the most powerful men in all of Israel, likely some of the most powerful in the world at that time. So imagine you're the Apostle Paul. You, if you thought that the chance to speak to that Jewish crowd the day before, if that had been a dream come true, now this opportunity that the Lord has provided for him to speak to the most influential leaders in the Jewish nation, this would have been more than Paul could have ever dreamed or hoped 
would happen, and yet there he is. There he is now standing right before them, most likely, we believe, perhaps somewhere right there within the Antonia Fortress, because the usual meeting of this Jewish body, their council chambers was what was called the Hall of Hewn Stone, and it was built right into the Temple Mount, but it was a location where a Gentile like Claudius would have been expressly forbidden. Now, I think just it's worth taking just a quick pause here to say I think we have to hand it to Commander Claudius for the way that he was so diligently seeking after the truth in this situation. He has gone to great lengths to understand and show himself willing to get this right as it relates to the Apostle Paul. First he questions the crowd, then he tries to question Paul, then the crowd again, then he allows Paul to speak for himself uh, to the crowd, then he tries to interrogate Paul, and now he's brought Paul in and he's convened this meeting of the ruling body of the Jewish nation for a hearing. Now we see here that the stage I think is set for something spectacular to happen here for the gospel and we can't help but wonder as we pause between verse 30 and verse 1 of the next chapter, what is it that Paul would share with these Jewish scholars, right? with this group of these powerful men. And so we see in verse 1 of chapter 23, it says, then Paul looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now just from that first statement, it certainly sounds, from Paul's opening words here, like he's about to share his personal testimony again with these men. And we see that he considers these to be men who were just like he used to be. In fact, many believe, and I think that we can make a pretty strong case biblically and historically, it's very likely that Paul probably was once a member of this very elite group of rulers. At the point that he was at the height of his career as a very prominent Jewish rabbi, an unmatched scholar in the Jewish scriptures, when he was zealous for the law and zealous for the faith. And notice the way that he addresses them. He addresses them as one who's equal with them because he calls them men and brethren. It's not the customary rulers of the people, elders of Israel, like we see that Peter used with them back in Acts chapter 4 when he appeared before this very same group about 25 years earlier. And yet I don't believe at all that Paul's intention was to be disrespectful, but I think we see him starting to try to build a bridge with this audience. Many of these men he no doubt knew. And he does that by reminding them that I was once just like you were. And just like them, that he had, he says there, he lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So he says that his public life has been blameless. His conscience is clear. He'd been a loyal Jew who'd lived as a good Jewish citizen. He hadn't broken the law of God. His conscience didn't condemn him, even though these Jews 
were condemning him. Now, this, this idea of conscience, it's a pretty important one in terms of Paul's theology. We see he uses it twice here in Acts, in this chapter, and we're going to see it next in chapter 24. But Paul uses this idea of conscience 21 other times in his letters that he writes. And conscience, the word simply means to know with or to know together. And so our conscience, as we all sort of understand, it's kind of that little inner judge inside of us, that little inner witness that approves when we do right and disproves when we do wrong. Uh, to the Romans, Paul talks about, he says that all people show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So again, it's that inner feeling, that little inner voice that kind of acts as a guide to whether our behavior is right or wrong. So often we'll talk about somebody who has a, a guilty conscience, and they have a guilty conscience because something that they've done doesn't line up with what they know in their hearts that they should have done. Now this all sounds great, but here's the really tricky thing about the human conscience, is that conscience doesn't set the standards, it only applies it. And in fact, I think psychologists got this one right. They say that conscience is a cognitive process that elicits emotion and rational associations based on an individual's moral philosophy or value system. So our conscience just interprets the things that we do and it judges us based on the things that we believe. So to frame this all a little bit more biblically, maybe to illustrate it effectively, think about our conscience as a window that lets in light, specifically the light of the truth of God. And the cleaner that window is, the more light can shine in. But as that window gets dirtier and the light gets dimmer, until the light just becomes darkness because our consciences are so clouded over. And again, this is something that Paul explains to us in his writings. He says that we can have a pure conscience, right? That conscience that lets in plenty of the light of God so that we're rightly convicted when we've done something wrong. We're rightly encouraged as we're doing things that are right. But he says we can then have a defiled conscience. It's a conscience that has been sinned against so much that it's not dependable anymore the way that it's witnessing to us. We can also have an evil conscience. If a person continues sinning against that defiled conscience, and then Paul says finally we can have what he calls in 1 Timothy 4, a seared conscience. And this is a conscience that's completely flipped upside down, a conscience that would feel convicted if someone did something that was right as opposed to something that was wrong. Again, the whole point of this is it's important to understand that our conscience doesn't make the standards, it just applies the standards that we've already made for ourselves, whether they're good or bad or right or wrong. And so unfortunately, when Jiminy Cricket said, 
always let your conscience be your guide, he was actually only half right. He was right as long as the window is clean, as long as our consciences are cleansed, and as long as our consciences are instructed and informed by the word of God and by the truth of God that's found there in the word of God. And that's why Paul could make the statement that he makes, because Paul realized that even when he was living as a Jew, when he was zealous for the law, even when he was persecuting Christians, even until the death, even when he was, as he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews and concerning the law of Pharisee, he could still claim a clear conscience because he was just living up to the light that he had at the time. And that's really the only thing that's required to have a good conscience. It wasn't until after Paul became a Christian and that bright light of the glory of God started to flood into his heart, then he started to see things differently. Then his conscience was cleansed, and then he realized that according to God, he was more like the chief of sinners. And so I think that's at the heart of why it is that Paul starts out with kind of this sort of a shocking declaration. He's trying to set the stage for these men. He's trying to prepare the hearts of these men by saying very clearly to them, look, I thought I was living my life the right way all my life, just like you guys think that you're living the, your own lives the right way because my conscience was clear simply because it was uninformed. And I think that this is a wonderful way to start out his ministry to them. Like I said, at least I think so. We're going to see next that not everybody listening thought the same. Not everybody took this the way that Paul had intended that they take it. Look what it says in verse 2. It says that the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So here's Ananias, the current high priest, not to be confused with Annas, who was the high priest back in Acts chapter 4, or with the Christian sinning Ananias back in Acts chapter 5, or to our dear brother Ananias, who was the one who first ministered to Paul in Acts chapter 9 after his conversion. But this Ananias, the current high priest, he was so incensed by Paul's implication that he had lived in all good conscience, that he ordered one of his sort of Sanhedrin secret police force to slug Paul in the mouth. And that word for strike, it isn't just like a dainty slap. The word is more like a full force punch in the mouth. Because Ananias is one of those people that history tells us certainly lived with a defiled and an evil and most likely a completely seared conscience himself. Ananias was indeed one of the most corrupt men ever to be named high priest. The Jewish historian Josephus describes him as insolent and hot-tempered, profane and greedy. And at one point Josephus writes that Ananias took all the tithes that were, be, that were to be distributed for the living of the common priests 
and he stole all of it. So he stole from his fellow high priests. We know that he assassinated anyone who got in his way. He was more pro-Roman than he was pro-Israel. This guy was a hot mess. He sounds like the perfect candidate for public office, maybe in today's political climate. Okay, maybe not. But as we look at this man, right, we look at this violent reaction that he has to Paul's claim, I think that what's happening here with Ananias is that he was convicted even in his darkened heart, but he was convicted by the inherent integrity of Paul's heart, that here Paul was a man with a good and a clear conscience, and it was evident in the way that he spoke and it was evident in the way that he looked. His countenance just radiated that. And I think that Ananias was even a little bit pricked in his own clouded conscience because of it. It's like that old saying that I love, that if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one who yelps loudest is usually the one you hit. So Ananias had been hit, right? And now he hits back through one of his henchmen, slugging Paul in the face. And then it says in verse 3, Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Now, Paul was absolutely right in what he said, but he was maybe a little bit hot in the way that he said it. What Ananias had just done was absolutely illegal because the Jewish law given by God, which was very unique in the world at that time, but the Jewish law presumed that those who were accused were innocent until they were proven guilty. And of course, this is where we get the basis for our own system of law and for the presumption of innocence which still, amazingly, is fairly unique by some of the world's standards. So the Jewish law, according to Deuteronomy 25, said that it was absolutely forbidden for a man to be smitten without due process of the law. And if and when he was declared guilty and he was to be smitten, he was only to be smitten on the back and not on the mouth. Because the rabbis would write, that he who strikes the cheek of one Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. And he that strikes a man strikes the Holy One. So in their belief, to strike an innocent man, especially in the face, it was just like striking the face of God himself. And so here this man, in the very highest position in all of Israel, had just violated the very heart of the law that he was supposed to be upholding. And so Paul says that he was like a whitewashed wall. Now this is a reference that Paul borrowed, which they all would have understood, but he borrowed it probably from the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 13, Ezekiel pictures this beautiful wall which had been built, but with bad mortar in between all of the stones. So this wall looked lovely, but it had weak joints. It had nothing to hold it all together. 
and it was ready to simply fall over when the first wind blew upon it. And I think what a fitting description of someone who lives with a clouded conscience, because it's like the mortar that's holding the bricks of their life together is weak and it's decayed. And what's interesting here, of course, is that what Paul says to Ananias turns out to be prophetic because God did indeed smite Ananias. At the point when the Jews would revolt against Rome, not very long from this here, it happened in AD 66, at that point, when the Jews revolted against Rome, Ananias had to flee the city of Jerusalem for his life because of his well-known pro-Roman position. And yet the Jewish guerrillas found him hiding in an aqueduct near Herod's palace, and they killed him there and left him to rot in a ditch. So historically, it was a pretty deserved death for a despicable man. And yet, with all of that said, Paul probably was a little bit hotter here than he needed to be. And though some would see it as a very righteous anger, even Paul himself, we're going to see, seems to sense that he may have gone just a bit too far. Because we're going to read next in verses 4 and 5 about, about a very quick apology that Paul offers. Verse 4 says that those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So just as soon as Paul realized what he had done, he immediately apologized, at least for why he had done it. Right? Because he didn't recognize that Ananias was the high priest. And actually, that's not an unreasonable thought. Remember, Paul had been away from Jerusalem probably for the last 20 years. He may not have recognized Ananias. Some would suggest that the, because this wasn't an official meeting in the official chambers of the council, Ananias may not have been wearing his official robes. He wouldn't have been seated in the official seat of the, the high priest. Others suggest that Paul's poor eyesight as a result of that possible affliction with his eyes. Remember the malaria that we saw that he contracted back in chapter 13, that, that disease that brought him up actually into Galatia. But because of his poor failing eyesight, that he wouldn't have recognized Ananias. Whatever the reason that Paul didn't recognize, he very quickly quotes from Exodus chapter 22 to demonstrate that he would never have responded in that way that he responded. He never would have responded with this harsh criticism had he known that this was a duly ordained ruler of the people, even as corrupt as Ananias may have been. Notice Paul showed respect for the office, but not necessarily for the man who held the office, which can be an important distinction. Right? We can take issue personally. We can take issue with the policies and the politics or even the personality of a duly elected official, but we always need to respect the office that that individual holds. 
right? And remember, this works in both directions. It works, if you will, on both sides of the aisle. And we're not to speak evil of that person because it's all part of that respect that we should have for the institution of God-ordained human government and our understanding that he continues to be sovereign over it even when we don't understand how it is that he does it. And here Paul, I think, is modeling this for us even after he just got slugged in the mouth because of it. Now, there are plenty of people who would suggest that maybe Paul was just being sarcastic and maybe he quoted that verse in irony right to point out Ananias's ungodly behavior or maybe that he was refusing to recognize him at all because of his hypocrisy but I don't believe that be you know I believe that because Paul did indeed live with this kind of a clear conscience before God I believe that Paul did sincerely recognize when he was wrong and he very quickly apologized because he knew he had sinned against the word of God and therefore against God himself. Did you notice that Paul not only judged his own error, but he used God's word to do it and then he did that instantly. You know, the next best thing to never having failed at all is to confess your failure the moment you find out that you've made a mistake. And I think it's very true that one of the clearest indicators of our maturity as Christians is that length of time between when we commit a sin and we're convicted of that sin by the Spirit and then when we repent of that sin. It should be moments, if not minutes, and certainly not days or months. Amen? There's nothing more refreshing than someone who can quickly admit when they're wrong and then apologize for it. Because as a Christian, it demonstrates humility and it demonstrates our brokenness. It demonstrates Christian maturity and it keeps our consciences cleansed. It helps to keep that window clean so that the light can continue to pour in. I once heard this, this is great, husbands, you may want to jot this down, but I once heard that if you want to have the last word in any argument, then just be the first one to apologize. So the moment that Paul realizes this mistake, he calms himself down, he judged himself in light of the word of God, and he was ready to apologize. He recognized the position of the high priest even if he didn't respect the high priest as a person. Now at this point, poor Paul, right? This meeting is certainly not going the way that we imagine Paul hoped it would go because the, the actions of this hypocritical high priest, the attitudes of the rest of the council as they agreed with him, all of it showed Paul personally that he was not going to get a fair hearing. And so what I think we see next is Paul adjusting his approach, right? He's hoping, I think, to salvage this opportunity for the gospel. Look what it says in verse 6. It says that when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, 
I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So I think Paul amplifies this purely personal approach, and he goes directly to this doctrinal discussion that was at the heart of the issue. And it would have hit at the hearts of every man there. He cuts the chase. He goes right to what is the heart, if you will, of the gospel message. And that is the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 7 says that when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Now remember that there were two strong opposing parties within the Jewish religion with two very different perspectives on how they saw things and how they thought that things should be done in terms of leading the people of Israel. And we looked at this in, in kind of greater detail as they were opposing Jesus remember when we were in Matthew's gospel account. But quickly, the Pharisees, you'll remember, they were kind of more working class. They were the strict conservatives. They were quoting the scriptures constantly as the basis of their beliefs. And then the Sadducees were more so the upper ruling class. They had a much more progressive, a very theologically liberal perspective. They chose uh, materialism over revelation. They were all about what they could see instead of simply what was written. They denied that there was a supernatural reality. They denied eternity. They denied that there was angels or heaven. They said that there was no afterlife. They said that there was no resurrection. And so when Paul brings up the resurrection here, it would have hit on a very sore spot theologically. And then it says in verse 9, there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, then let us not fight against God. You notice how Paul is no longer the enemy here, nor was the truth of the resurrection even a consideration, but here we have these two factions simply fighting amongst themselves and against their passionately held positions. They are completely unwilling to listen to anything or anyone. And I know it is very hard for us even to imagine the ruling body of a nation that was so divided and so unwilling to even consider such a critical question. Right? that they would completely dismiss the search for truth based entirely on their partisan positions, even to their own harm or the harm of the nation. I know it's hard for us to even imagine how this could possibly be, except that people do it personally, not to mention politically, but they do it all the time. Because people tend to embrace information that supports our belief, and of course we reject information that contradicts our beliefs. It's called confirmation bias, right? That's why everybody knows that facts don't change minds, but what really changes minds is clouded 
consciences. In fact, this is the fifth time that this very council has repeatedly rejected the truth of the gospel. The first time was at the trial of Jesus. The second time in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were there. And Peter very plainly said that neither is there salvation in any other name, for there's no, under, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Then the third time, you remember, was when they dragged in all the twelve in chapter 5. The fourth time would have been Stephen in chapter 7. And so this is the fifth and final time here as they drag in the Apostle Paul. You look at that history, there is such a great danger in a seared conscience that won't let in the light of truth. A conscience that's completely covered over with that kind of a hardened scar tissue, if you will, so that the, the prickings and the, the pokings of divine truth no longer even create any kind of a sensation. And yet look at how gracious God is with this council. Five different times, the greatest communicators of the gospel who ever lived were face to face with those men, including Jesus himself, and they were allowed the privilege of hearing the truth, and yet five different times they condemned themselves. They condemned themselves here in the language of Jesus in John uh, 3. He said that this is the condemnation. He says that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. They had set their minds against it. They were blinded by Satan. Their consciences were clouded over with these layers and layers of scar tissue so that the light of the gospel couldn't even penetrate into their hearts. Look at verse 10. It says that now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So once again, here's Claudius Lysias coming to Paul's rescue, removing him forcefully from the midst of this situation that was about to become deadly for him. Now, try to put yourself in Claudius Lysias' shoes. You've got to wonder what it was he thought about these fanatical Jews at this point. Up on the Temple Mount, Remember that that angry mob had erupted into a riot at the mention of just one word, Gentiles. And now here, just the next morning, we have the most distinguished men of the most distinguished body of the rulers of all of Israel erupting once again, literally coming to blows over one word, resurrection. So much so that they were about to pull Paul to pieces as they fought until he was kind of snatched up and taken back into the protective custody of the Romans. Now, there are plenty of people who would look at this passage and they'll comment about how clever Paul was or even crafty he was. 
in the way that he looked and he very quickly summed up his opponents and that he purposely drove this doctrinal wedge between them to get them distracted and fighting with each other instead of focusing on their argument with him and that somehow Paul skillfully exploited their kind of a col collective Achilles heel in order to save his own skin. And yet, I, I think as I study this, that this completely misses the mark. I think it paints Paul in the wrong light because a man who lives his life so consistently before the Lord, a man with such a clear and a sensitive conscience toward the Lord would not so quickly and so knowingly violate his conscience in such a premeditated, underhanded way, even in order to save himself. Right? He wouldn't just say that the ends justify the means. It would contradict who he was and what he taught. It would contradict the way that we've seen that he so trusts in the sovereignty of God and in God's ability to care for and to protect his servants, God doesn't need us to cleverly engineer our way out of our troubles. He doesn't need us compromising our convictions and our consciences, and especially not when it compromises truth. We should be able to walk uprightly and to walk honorably, to walk truthfully, and then simply to leave the outcome to him. What I believe, what I see here, is that Paul was so desperate to see these Jewish men saved, to see them influence the nation for the truth of Jesus Christ, that as he saw this golden opportunity slipping away, that he wanted quickly to bring the issue of the resurrection to the forefront of the discussion. Again, just to cut to the chase. And he was absolutely right when he said that the real issue was the issue of the resurrection of Jesus. It's just the very same thing that he has declared before in every one of the Jewish congregations in every city that we've seen him visit. But here, look what Luke says in verse 6, that Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees. So he realized that half of these men didn't even believe in the idea of resurrection, which would certainly be a stumbling block to them receiving the truth about the resurrection of Jesus. The entire witness in the book of Acts centers on the resurrection of Jesus. And so I think that Paul knew he had to address this issue before they could possibly believe his testimony. That's what I believe. And I will tell you honestly that I seem to be in the minority of people who would look at what Paul did and conclude that he did it without his own personal interest in mind. And yet, as we finish up, in our last verse this morning, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that I think that I have the witness and the words of Jesus on my side as well. Because look what Luke tells us next in verse 11. We have some divine encouragement. It says, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, 
so you must also bear witness at Rome. Notice Jesus didn't say to Paul, clever strategy, Paul. <laughs> you know, you really got one over on those guys. And I'm so thankful that you stepped in there and kept yourself alive because, Paul, I have no idea how I would have gotten you to Rome otherwise. So see, that's what Jesus didn't say. What Jesus did say is, well done, faithful servant. So there was no word of condemnation, no word of correction for doing something dishonest or for taking matters into his own hands, but simply a word of commendation and a word of encouragement in the wake of what was a job well done. Here's Paul, no doubt, in the darkness of the night, all alone in this protective custody of the Roman fortress, I have to believe he was disheartened and he was discouraged about the way things had gone down as these two wonderful opportunities he had to reach his brethren had seemingly both blown up right before his eyes. So probably like every pastor I know, every Sunday afternoon, Paul probably second-guessed every word that he had said, wondering if maybe if he had just said this, or if he just hadn't said that, maybe things would have gone a little bit better. Right? We've all been there, right? Wishing we maybe had done things a little bit differently, and yet here Jesus shows up when Paul needed to hear from him the most. And Jesus says effectively, what you just did here in Jerusalem, the way that you truthfully and that you faithfully testified of my resurrection, Jesus says, I need you to do that very same thing again in Rome. And then he says, and you will do it in Rome. Notice he says, even though Paul had done a good job, that there was more of the job to be done. And can I tell you that these are the greatest words that a faithful servant of God can possibly hear is that I have more work for you to do. Because this kind of a divine promise that there's more work to do is also a promise of continued protection while we're doing that work. And I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said that a divine decree ordains for you greater and more trying service than as yet you have seen. A future awaits you, and no power on earth or under the earth can rob you of it. Therefore, be of good cheer. And the truth is that this promise can be said to apply to every single one of us as a child of God. There is more for you to do. There are more people to bring to Christ. There are more ways for us to glorify him, more people to pray with. There are more humble ways to serve his people. There are more hungry to feed and naked to clothe. And there are more weary saints for us to encourage. And so Jesus encourages us. He says, I have more for you to do. And I think Paul may have been discouraged about what he thought was a lack of these great results as a result of these sermons in Jerusalem. But I also think there's a beautiful reminder for us right here from Jesus that the results weren't Paul's problem. 
right? Paul's responsibility, just like our responsibility, was to bring the word of God and to testify of Jesus Christ and to the work that Jesus had done in his life. And the results of that testimony, those were God's responsibility. And when we have been faithful to do that, just to do that, then just like Paul, we can be of good cheer. Not only about what we've done, but also about the things that we're going to do next. Because literally, be of good cheer, what it simply means is take courage. And it's a beautiful little word. It's actually just one little word in the ancient Greek. It's used five times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's used by Jesus. To the bedridden paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. To that woman who had the 12-year bleeding problem, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. To his frightened disciples, remember in the storm there on the Sea of Galilee, he says, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Also to the disciples, the night before his crucifixion, he said that in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And then right here, Jesus tells Paul, in this Roman jail, in the face of failure and in discouragement, but in light of his future calling, Jesus says, be of good cheer. So whatever the circumstance, right, whatever the issue, whether it's health or danger or tribulation or persecution or imprisonment or discouragement or failure, whatever it is, Jesus can say, be of good cheer. And notice this. Though we've seen that Paul has been miraculously delivered from jail cells before, notice this time Jesus met him right there in the jail cell, encouraged him there in the jail cell, and then left him there in the jail cell with that encouragement. And so often I think that what we demand of Jesus is that he deliver us out of whatever our challenging circumstance is, but Jesus wants to meet us right in the midst of them and then strengthen us right there because those circumstances are the very things that he is working through. Right? He wants to meet us in whatever it is that we faced at the moment that he knows we need a word of encouragement from him. And all the time, Jesus knows we need that word of encouragement even before we know how much we need that word of encouragement. Because here's a spoiler alert. At this moment, Paul knew that his situation was bad, but Paul had no idea how bad it really was. In fact, Paul didn't even know the half of it, how bad it was. What he didn't know, is what we're going to learn next week, is that the very next morning, 40 Jewish assassins were going to gather together and take a vow with one another to go on a hunger strike until they had assassinated Paul. Now, Paul didn't know that was about to happen, but Jesus did. And yet still, he could say to Paul, be of good cheer. And I think in the same way, we might think that things are bad right now, 
but we may not even know the half of it. How's that for encouragement on a Sunday morning, right? But Jesus knows, and he still says to you, and he still says to me, be of good cheer. Why? Not necessarily because everything is fine, but because God is still on his heavenly throne. God still holds to that promise that he's able to work all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Anybody can be of good cheer when everything is going great, but the Christian can be of good cheer when everything is going rotten. And we do it knowing that God is mighty and wonderful no matter what the crisis is in this moment. And as we finish up this morning, we can only imagine Paul right here in his jail cell after being visited by Jesus. I bet Paul slept like a baby. Right? He'd had a pretty big day, right? But I think more so he slept like a baby because it's absolutely true what they say that a clear conscience is a soft pillow. And here Paul had this wonderfully clear conscience because it was constantly being cleansed by the word of God. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We do thank you. We thank you for your word, Lord, and for the way that it, uh, it cleanses our consciences, Lord, the way that it informs and instructs us, Lord, as we seek to live lives that are pleasing, Lord, and that glorify you. Um, so, Father, we pray that you'd help to minister these truths to our hearts, Lord. Help to and encourage and to equip us and to cleanse us through your word, Lord, that we can uh, serve you, Lord, and be powerful witness and testimony to you. So we thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's uh, worship. And then uh, I'll come back up and we'll close. Mm -hmm.